0: Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Bridget Cohen, author of Musical Migration and Imperial New York, Early Cold War Scenes, published by University of Chicago Press in 2022. The heart of this book is about the connections forged and broken amid the dislocations caused by war and imperialist ambitions. Rather than telling a simple tale bounded by chronology, one person lived from this time to another and did one thing and then another, Cohen circles loosely around a single year, 1960, and crosses time and place to examine how a group of artists mediated ideas of displacement, race, gender, imperialism, and Cold War Orientalism through their work. Cohen begins with an examination of the complex musical and personal interactions during the 1957 Greenwich House Sessions organized by Edgar Varese, and then turns to the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center, the early work of Yoko Ono, and finally the early years of Flexus. She considers a disparate collection of people, institutions, and artworks that almost but not quite cross paths in New York City, a place she calls a capital of empire. While she focuses on figures, institutions, and groups that are well known among scholars who work on music and Cold War politics, she looks under and around these familiar topics to center people, art, and events that have been overlooked or even dismissed in other scholarship. Thank you so much for joining me today, Bridget. I'm excited to talk about your book today.
1: Well, it's a pleasure and honor to be here with you, Kristen.
0: (laughs) Well, how did you come
1: to the topic of this book? Well, I came to this topic um, through a surprise find in an archive. And when I was working on my dissertation, which became my first book, on the German-Jewish émigré composer Stefan Volta, um, I was immersed in his archives, which are in Basel, Switzerland. And I was surprised to come across a set of poems by Yoko Ono, In his archive. It had never occurred to me that a German Jewish emigre musician who was born in 1902 and who was a middle-aged man in New York in the 1950s could have had a friendship with a young Yoko Ono, a different generation, a person born in Tokyo who had been in New York in the same period. And that just opened a, a complete new horizon for me. There was no literature that placed these two you know artists musicians together and i began to think about other possible cross currents Um, you know surprising heterogeneous connections between artists musicians creators who aren't usually thought of as being in the same story together and um, and then i began to work on this project um, which became an article and then a chapter in the current second my second book um, the, the composer Edgar Vérez and his crossing paths with the jazz musician, composer, um, art music composer, Charles Mingus. And, um, and that became a kind of another heterogeneous crossing. Um, these different scenes uh, also made me think about questions of power in a really intensive way, especially when I was working on hey. Vérez and Mingus, where um these two different musicians occupied very different um different uh status in US society had um extremely unequal citizenship extremely unequal access to economic opportunities to musical institutions especially art music institutions and um increasingly, as I thought about the questions of power and tried to conceptualize them in relation to these scenes of people who had immigrated to the U.S. or come, I mean, immigrated to the U.S. and come specifically to, to New York as a hub um, of creativity and economic and art activity and cultural a cultural hub, um, I began to think about, um, you know, how to conceptualize conceptualize how power was playing out within institutions and within New York and the wider economic and political um, structures of the city and i I landed on um, Empire essentially thinking about New York as an imperial metropolis and an imperial metropolis is a place that draws people from all over the world um, Empire is a is a, a kind of configuration of power that involves external expansion um, which also involves the displacement of peoples at the outer peripheries of the empire and then also the conundrum of how do you sort the people within the empire? How do you classify people? How are people organized within a hierarchy? Um, how are existing power structures reinforced? And how are newcomers to newcomers um, you know admitted into institutions in an imperial metropolis like New York? Um, and once they're admitted into the institutions, how do they know what their place is in relation to all of the other heterogeneous people who come from different places? Um, so these questions of hierarchies of citizenship, Um, questions of access to power to opportunity, um, questions of um, different sort of gradations of citizenship um, all come into play in musical settings and and, and are part of the scene of musical creativity and interaction.
0: Well, that actually, your answer really does a good job of transitioning us to your first chapter, which is about these Greenwich house sessions in 1957, which I think people have talked about before they were, um, this kind of moment when Varez, Edgar Varez, who's a classical music composer, sort of was wanting to work with jazz musicians. and But you think about it in this ways of hierarchy and power relationships, which I'm not sure others who have written about them have. So can you talk a little bit more about what those sessions are and then why you approached it as you did as, as thinking about Varez and Mingus who is rarely, you know, some people don't even realize he was even there because he's he was, uh, I, you know, just not mentioned um, by many of the people that uh, were involved in it. So And he doesn't mention them either. So can you tell us a little bit more about that idea or that session?
1: Sure, yeah. So when I began investigating this kind of historical episode, these Greenwich House sessions, um, I, what led me to that Uh, Scene was actually a a kind of relatively informal blog post um, that that included MP3s of of, um, bootlegged recordings, um, bootlegged recordings of these sessions. Um, These bootlegged recordings appeared on the internet with very little context. And, um, and when I listened to the sessions, indeed, I could hear Edgar Varese's voice, um, uh, seemingly leading improv sessions. Um, and we could hear jazz musicians performing. Um, and then the, the, the music was this really unusual, um, uh, like, a kind of music I had never heard before in some ways looking forward to free jazz, but also totally stilted <laughs> and, um, um, and uh, kind of heterogeneous, like a, a, like a, a simultaneous improvisation um, that was not um, based in tonal harmony. Um, but also not really the musicians were not necessarily kind of in sync with one another. It was super intriguing, different from anything I I I had heard before, and online there was a lot of commentary. People were excited because um, there was this, um, because uh, Edgar Varese is a composer who has a kind of cult status, uh, not only in um, communities of people who are interested in 20th century modern music or modernist music or experimental music, but also in a kind of hipster culture around electronic music. And so this was seen as a super hip thing that Edgar Varese, in fact, associated with jazz musicians and if anything it was like a kind of um to his credit as a hipster composer that he was associating with with jazz musicians and maybe even with Charles Mingus and there was some speculation on the thread that Charles Mingus's voice was also on the recordings I knew that um Edgar Varese's um that his uh, uh, that basically his his papers and his uh, uh estate um or the creative side of his estate, was in the possession of the Zacher Stiftung in Basel. And so I went to Basel to hear the original recordings. And, um, and, and, and as I listened to them in more detail, um, one of the things that really stood out to me was how, yes, I thought I heard Charles Mingus's voice on the recording. Um, and in particular, I heard Charles Mingus say, saying, this is not natural for me, um, to Edgar Varese, um, a statement about the creative situation. Um, And so there seemed to be this kind of um, almost an agonistic quality to the interaction. And of course, Charles Mingus, as known as as a person, an activist who did not hold his punches and um, was outspoken in his civil rights advocacy and in his commitment to um the black arts movement eventually. And um it was interesting for me to think about him in like dialogue with Edgar Varez, who as I dug more deeply into Varez's record, you know, Edgar Varez was a, a, a nativist um sort of uh anti-semitic i mean he, he had a history of making anti-semitic anti-black statements so i was wondering what would this interaction have been what brought these folks together um, and also you know there was no mention of the um of these sessions in uh, any second well there was one article about about the sessions which kind of um basically celebrated it as a moment of creativity in Verez's um compositional career but other than that there there was Basically, no mention of it in secondary literature. So I was interested in the silences surrounding the sessions. Um, And I began to see the sessions as an emblem for um, a problem that um, George Lewis, uh, musicologist, musician, composer George Lewis, has identified in um, music historiography more generally about a tendency to segregate history of jazz um, from history of art music um, in in this case, uh, segregated along lines of um, uh, uh, you know uh, race-coded genre, so I was interested in how this these sessions got well, left out of the historical record, um, but that's uh, kind of an uh, 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 an indicator of how um, the memory of interactions between classical musicians um, and musicians who were associated with the music we think of as jazz, um, as racialized, you know, communities, um, how these interactions uh, often get left, you know, are kind of um, elided from the historical record or, or people don't really know how to write about the complexity of what took place.
0: Well, that, you know, as I was reading it, I understood why Varez wanted to work with these jazz musicians, because as you were pointing out, there's this way of sort of, um, you know, white musicians who work with white classical musicians who work with black musicians, especially someone like Varez who was an immigrant, can sort of. Um, establish their bona fides as an American and as a white person and all of that by kind of interacting with with jazz musicians. But I couldn't understand why the jazz musicians wanted to work with Perez. Like, what, what do you think they got out of that interaction?
1: Kristen, I'm still grappling with this question today, and I don't have a definitive answer. My speculative one is that we know that Charles Mingus was invested in interracial collaboration as a way of breaking against the confines of the really rigid, racially codified genres um, and entrenched, um, entrenched racial hierarchy of the music industry and music institutions of his era. And so when he's being labeled as a black jazz musician in the night, in 1957, that means, that means that, 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 that that limits him in terms of what, you know, what he can do creatively, what people will expect him to do creatively, what they'll recognize him for doing creatively. Um, And to cross genre and also, um, and also, in you know, participate in interracial collaboration, there there can be something kind of liberatory about that in breaking out of a kind of racial segregation. But at the same time, the terms under which that often happened in the nineteen fifties wasn't under the terms of equality. And so, we know, for example, that in third stream, um, you know, classical jazz collaborations, um, the as George Lewis puts it black musicians were treated as the inferior partner economically, also in terms of recognition for creative participation. And something similar probably happened, likely happened at the Greenwich house sessions. And we can just know on the basis of, um, of the, of, of Edgar Perez's, you know, his kind of race ideology is articulated in other writings. And also on the basis of the memory of Bill Crow, a bassist who participated in the sessions and who I interviewed, who remembered Varez basically saying, "Well, to the to the jazz musicians, well, you know, that was pretty cool. It was pretty wild, but I want you to be wilder." And um, coming in there with these primitivist expectations about what jazz should be as a black coded music. And
0: I love that you brought up at the end this idea of primitivism because that seemed to me to run through that whole chapter. This idea of, of of, um, you know, primitivism in Varese, in modernisms, and, and also in sort of um, the ideologies around jazz too. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. You called at one point, I think it was Varese and Mingus had sort of a false cognate about primitivism in the way that, and, and I would love for you to expand a bit on that idea.
1: Sure. Yeah. False cognates, in the sense that Edgar Varèse, um, Edgar Varèse came in, I believe, came into the sessions with a kind of Euro-American, white Euro-American, uh, primitivist expectation that um, that jazz music uh, should should express this kind of uh, primal, um, primitive energy. Uh, that could be harnessed within uh, a a kind of Euro-American art music in order to give it a sense of vitality and regeneration and excitement, et cetera. So it's essentially an exploitative model um, that denigrates the um, racially coded other object and then seeks to to incorporate it into an essentially Euro-American aesthetic. And for Mingus, on the other hand... Composing a work like *Pithecanthropus Erectus*, he uh, conceived this work as a, a, a composition with a poetic program that um, was connected with a kind of political, um, political, with political critique, where *Pithecanthropus Erectus* is conceived as a work that is about the barbarity of white supremacy. And so in the free improvisation sections of Pithecanthropus erectus, things get really wild musically and with sounds that might've appealed to Varez to Verez as you know, exemplifying some kind of like primitive sensuality and um, extreme like violence that um, was exciting and connected with ideas of, you know, of, of um, racialized otherness, but for, Mingus it's about the barbarity of white supremacy and so you know musically there may be similarities in terms of what they were interested in but the politics connected with that were completely opposite so that's what makes this dialogue between the two of them fascinating but also um, but also completely just mortifying and 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 unbearable to even think about at a certain level. Like picturing what it would be like for for Mingus to be interacting with someone like Varez who who is objectifying him in such a cool way, essentially. Yes,
0: well, yeah, And well in the tragedy, of course, is probably used to it. You know that right. I, I mean I think that probably right. happened to him all the time, right? So
1: right it's right which, mis- we, which he writes about i mean he talks about it in his interviews and so yeah yeah that kind of misrecognition where your work
0: you, you can't get your work recognized for what it's really about by a whole group of people that's that kind of frustration is is horrible i i interviewed someone for another book a couple months ago where he talked about he thought that the the pressure of that on um John Bubbles, who uh, was the first person who played sport in life, like, shadowed his whole life. Like, it was just so difficult to be working and doing what you wanted to do and, and being an entertainer, but on the other hand, having, never having really what you want to do, being recognized for what it is you're doing is, is so hard for to, to live with, right, and, and to cope with. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I think that you draw that out really well about the complexities of those relationships and how, um, how, we you know, you can't really tell what's going on but you know it's happening and how do you tease out in those silences and in those, those moments between what they're saying and the moments right before they start playing, like what's happening there, you know? I, 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 yeah, I mean, it's
1: I for, it, these are the kinds of dynamics that get left out of the official histories. And then how how to bring how to bring in some recognition of them, but at the same time we have need to be speculative in how how you bring it bring bring it in, because of the silences.
0: Well, I mean, maybe that's I was gonna th- thinking about asking this at the end, but I'm gonna ask it now. I mean, I think through every chapter, you seem to be very interested in the silences, in archival silence, in um, people whose careers didn't really end up being what they wanted to, at least as a composer, people whose compositional careers are overshadowed by other things about them. You know, what is it about those silences that draws you so much in this book?
1: I'm interested in how in different kinds of silences and different kinds of unspoken substance in some way. And so there's the unspoken, there are unspoken things that are unspoken, because people are afraid to talk about them. There are unspoken things that are unspoken, because it was common knowledge, and no one needed to talk about it. And then there are unspoken things that are unspoken, because those things are just traumatic, or too appalling to talk about. And then there are unspoken things that are unspoken because they're yeah they're deemed insignificant. And um, so then there's a lot of overlap among these different categories. And I would say that it's by focusing on the unspoken that you can actually focus on questions of ideology. Um, what are those um, ways of being and feeling and thinking that are so habitual that we don't speak them? What are those ways of thinking, being, and feeling that are habitual and also appalling, like what we're describing with regard to uh, Mingus and Varez, um, um, with this kind of racial objectification and denigration? Um, and so, by focusing on these on the silences and the unspoken things, I think it's a way of getting at ideology, and that is part of my goal in thinking about these music institutions. In New York as a, an imperial metropolis, and New York as a site where, you know, so much money was coming into the arts. The infrastructure was being built. The infrastructure that we live with today was, you know, the art music institutions was basically built in the 1950s. And what were the unwritten rules? What were what was the unwritten? What what were the unwritten power dynamics? Um, how does power play out in these institutions? And in this sense, the music institutions are a kind of microcosm for power in the United States and institutions in the United States more generally is how I see it, essentially. So I see it as a kind of history of the recent past focusing on questions of power as they play out in these institutions.
0: Well, one of those institutions that you talk about is the Columbia-Princeton Electronic Music Center, which is a really important institution for modernist electronic music. It was the first lab of its kind in the U.S. There's, you know, if people listening to this go online, they can see these pictures of this room that's got these enormous pieces of of, of equipment in there that, you know, you can do on your phone now, you know, and, and it yeah. was this very laborious process of basically um playing with sound like how do you manipulate sound um at sort of the the dawn of being able to do that but most people when they talk about at least that I've read you know they talk about Milton Babbitt they talk about these really famous composers that worked there but you talk about three figures in particular one is you talk about one of the founders Yusachevsky and then Mm -hmm. two composers that uh, were residents there early on, and did not have what I would call conventionally successful compositional careers, um, and uh, and I think it's pretty clear that you're interested in those because of this issue of silence. Let's start with with Yusef Chesky, um, and and his battle with the FBI that he was under investigation for twenty years. You know why that part of his. Career and life, do you, are you most interested in?
1: Right. Well, I focused on Usachevsky for two reasons. One is because I think that the founding of the center was really his brainchild, and he founded the center in um, by working with the Rockefeller Foundation. And so it's partly a story about how foundation-based patronage, um, you know. Helped to establish this new infrastructure in the city, including the emergence of electronic music as a real thing. Um, just to invest in the equipment, which is extremely expensive, and convert wartime technologies to civilian use. And Usachevsky was um, a, a major player in that in the United States. And this story is completely entwined with his relationship with the FBI. Um, Usachevsky, I, Usachevsky conceived the. Um, of the Electronic Music Center as he was basically planning it in the 1950s as a hub for cultural diplomacy and as a place where musicians from throughout the world would come to New York and New York would I mean and the the center um, the studio would be a place where um, where these musicians from throughout the world would learn about the latest technologies in electronic music and then and then Basically, established pilot programs in um, their home nations, and there was a particular focus on um, East and Southeast Asia and Latin America as centers of geographical, um, I mean, strategic uh, importance um, in U.S. cultural diplomacy efforts. And so, this is, of course, where the why the Rockefeller Foundation is part of. Like, he's conceiving all of this in collaboration with the Rockefeller Foundation as. Um, as an institution that is um, part of the U.S., uh, a big, big part of the U.S. soft power project during the Cold War, and working uh, in also dovetailing with um, State Department objectives. Ustachevsky himself had been, um, had worked for the State Department and also for the OSS, and so um, he had these relationships in this world. He was also target of, um, of FBI investigation Uh, precisely because he had worked in the OSS, the precursor to the CIA, during World War II. And there were a lot of conspiracy theories that emerged in the 1940s in conjunction with the Red Scare that, um, that sought to root out basically what we might think of today as deep state conspirators in the OSS and then also in the State Department. Who, um, you know, basically red scare mongers, um, accused of having betrayed U.S. interests in um, in, in, in the struggle against communism. Ussachevsky is a uh, is a, a person who had immigrated from um, Manchuria and. He's a person of Russian extraction who had immigrated from Manchuria to the United States in 1930. So he has this Russian background. He also had a sister who still uh, lived uh, in the Soviet Union in St. Petersburg, and another sister who lived in China um, during the 1940s and uh, 1950s. And um, he was seen by the FBI as vulnerable to um, blackmail and as potentially being a spy. And so they investigated him. His file um, began, the FBI file begins in 1945 and ends in 1965, so over this 20-year period, he was um, monitored, surveilled, and um, and he was also denied a regular passport in 1953. And when Chesky realized he was being denied the passport, that's when he became very aggressive in trying to um, really shore up his relationship with the Rockefeller Foundation, and institutionalize this project at Columbia University, the building up of a studio, you know, using Rockefeller Foundation money, which created a kind of um, armature of protection within within the university. Institutional protection.
0: Well, it's so interesting to me that he chose to do that, and I can see why I would feel Feel that way to him, but it really could have backfired because the FBI could have just seen that as well. Now he's snaking his way into these important institutions. Of course, he's a spy, right? Like, and in some right. ways, it might have have prolonged his his um, uh, surveillance because he he was so aggressively courting important institutions.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I mean, it, 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 he was in a genuinely precarious situation. And he was also trying to secure his sister's passage to the U.S. and wanting, wanting to help them immigrate to the U.S., reunite his family. And um, and and so I think the upshot of the story is that from the outside, um, looking at usachevsky from a conventional historiographical standpoint, he seems like a really... Um, Relatively privileged white male composer who had a prestigious, situa- you know, prestigious position at Columbia as the founder of this uh, studio, and but then you go a little bit beneath the surface and you see that he himself was being surveilled and subject to unequal citizenship status and um, deprived of basic citizenly, um, you know, rights, uh, rights essentially, and. And it gives you, and that's a story of of America, <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and the kind of gradations of citizenship. And so we could say that relative to, um, you know, Charles Mingus, uh, you know, uh, Ustachevsky has, you know, tremendous, ter- tremendous privilege and rights. Um, but even he is subject to, you know, some kind of persecution. And then what kind of creation? What kind of situation does that create? You know, when 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 he's, you know, feeling disempowered in this way? How does that affect his interactions with others and what he does within the institution? So um, that's, that's, that's one of the main questions that that motivated my work on, um, on, on his particular story.
0: Well, there's lots more things we could talk about with, yeah. the, with the electronic studio, but I I want to make sure that we also talk about Yoko Ono because yeah. me, I think your work on her is so important because she's like so many women figures where um, you know, when people talk about her, it's always about her relationships with other people and never about her work, right? It's like she's the witch who broke up you know, the Beatles, or she was John Cage's disciple who had no real, you know, interesting things to say on her own. And, and you are, I think, really bringing out and taking her seriously as an artist that, and and it's not about her relationships with other people or, you know, the famous people that knew her. It's about who she is as an artist. And I'd love for you to talk about, you know, Yoko Ono's time in New York and that early work that you are so interested in.
1: Well, Yoko Ono is a figure who really exemplifies this dynamic, um, a a certain kind of Cold War, New York art and music institution dynamic um, that I explore in this book, where certain kinds of figures like Yoko Ono became important mediators of transnational art communities, helping to establish connections between places like Tokyo, New York, New York, London, um, coordinating festivals, exchanges, etc., cetera, um, and also were equally important to the intellectual creative ferment where they were just, Minyoko Ono is brimming with these far out, incredibly original ideas she was a charismatic individual um, her work is like no one else's and people borrowed from her extensively and responded to her and um, and so she's so she's part of the you know the, the the a big part of the substance of what this post-war cultural ferment was and 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 the way that the New York art and music scene became a kind of global thing that was emulated in other places, et cetera, and generated so much excitement. And yet she is kind of written out of the story. And she is denigrated in, of course, we know like popular media and in the official histories, she's described almost as a kind of hanger on or as a groupie of John Cage. And Um, And she's also not really seen as being part of what um, in music historiography is seen as the American experimental tradition, this this national genealogy of composers um, from Charles Ives through John Cage and beyond that is um, really at the center of, um, of, of, of the historiography of the scene. So um, she's not seen as American enough, not male enough, and so on. So I was interested in, um, you know, exploring, you know, what was the real story? How did this happen? Um, and you really get a sense of the gatekeeping. And um, and it begins right right for the, the time of her debut when she's collaborating with Lamont Young and um, the Chamber Street Loft series, hosted in her own loft apartment, which she rented for the purpose of staging this series, and she's written out of the program, and um, and then also these rumors are you know the, the 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 artists like promulgate these rumors that she is Lamont Young's concubine, um, which um, Yoko Ono later complained about, and so and that's clearly there's in fact it was worse they they, they described her as being the um, the kept woman of a Chinese man, and they. Um, this was supposedly a joke about Lamont Young's name sounding Chinese, and so there's this this it's kind of Orientalist denigration of her, right from the beginning, um, sexualizing her in a demeaning way, and writing her out of the program, and then um, and then later when she's when she's um, touring in Tokyo with John Cage, on a tour that she really helped to. Organized, she spearheaded it, Um, then often her works were attributed to John Cage, and her own works were also lampooned in the press as being derivative. So um, later, I mean, my more recent research has shown how she was um, completely shut out of foundation based patronage. She applied for grants um, connected with the Rockefeller family and um, and was you know denied those grants which exactly mirrors what happened to Michiko Toyama a Japanese composer who had composed at the Columbia-Princeton Electronic Music Center who I focus on and she was also shut out of the patronage networks and the um, work by Michael Yui shows how um, the foundation patronage basically completely shut out women and people of color during this period and um, there you know different reasons for that that we could talk about in you know more detail but that's the end result of it. And um, and so, yeah, this is a story about gatekeeping. Um, but one reason I focus so much in my book on Yoko Ono's specific works, really going to, into close readings of different performances that she did is because... Um, that's what we need to do <laughs> to recognize, you know, what she did as a creator and hear her voice. And I think that her essays, you know, these, she was trained in philosophy, one of the first Japanese women to enroll in a prestigious philosophy, uh, uh, uh BA program after the war. And she's trained in philosophy, trained in classical music. These things are very much intertwined because she's kind of raised in this tradition where music and philosophy are thought of as, you know, um, mutually entangled endeavors and she's a serious thinker just I I I can't get enough (laughs) of reading her and you know thinking about her work and so that's actually my next book project so
0: (laughs) well I mean I think what you do with her is what needs is that you take her seriously right and you subject her work to the same kind of interrogation that's routinely done for Cage right yeah and um uh and, you know, the problem with sort of the great man history that is really all around Cage is that that shadows absolutely everybody else. And I think your work also shows how that that isn't just the gatekeeping that happens, you know, by historians looking back or musicologists looking back. It was happening real time so that their erasure is sort of this double erasure of, like you were saying, she couldn't get funding. She was made fun of um, in, during the Loft series, all of that. But then also later on, it just makes it that much more difficult to look back and find her in the glare, in this case of John Cage. Um, So, uh, and then she doesn't, she, she sent you one thing, I think, but she didn't really cooperate uh, with you either in, in your scholarship for whatever reason. And, um, and so in some ways she's sort of cooperating her own erasure later on by not cooperating with you to, to help her, you know, to bring to, to bring some of her work out.
1: Although she did, she, she did. I will say though that, yeah, she sent me some stuff. Yeah. She sent me stuff on Stefan Volpe because she, I think she wanted to, you know, promote Stefan Volpe as someone who is less, you know, less known this you know, Emma Gray, who, who was virtually forgotten, um, which was a really gracious move on her part. And um, but I will say that she did end up tweeting uh, a more journalistic piece that I wrote. So apparently she liked this short the, the a piece that I wrote for the conversation that was picked up by PBS news. So she tweeted it. So at least I know she liked that, <laughs> but I, but I, I, I totally respect her for, for, for not like, I mean, she has so much going on and probably surrounded by many potentially predatory, you know, people who want a piece of her. And so I'm happy for, you know, I'm happy to have some distance and, um, you know, to also ha- have some critical perspective and mixed with admiration from afar.
0: I was surprised when I got to the last chapter, and you moved from New York to Wiesbaden. And um, because, you know, New York's in the title and it's this whole story. That's the one place of sort of connection is that everyone was in New York. And but then you end the story in Wiesbaden. Can you talk about why you needed to make that choice? What does that do for you? You know, why did you move to Wiesbaden?
1: Yes. Well, in thinking about New York as an imperial capital and thinking about the U.S. as an empire, we need to be thinking about relationships between center and periphery. And, and that's something I try to do throughout my book, um, including in the, CP, the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center chapter, um, where I move some between Cairo and um, New York or between Tokyo and New York. In the chapter on Machunas and Flexus, I was fascinated by this prehistory of violence that is really part of Flexus, but has not fully been integrated into the story of Flexus. And it's really emblematized in Machunis's biography from childhood onward, where he um, was born in in Lithuania, the son of an electrical engineer. Um, And he grew up in Lithuania during the period of Soviet occupation in the early 40s and then subsequent Nazi occupation where his father worked for both imperial powers in succession. And then they had to flee Lithuania when the Soviets were returning and um, ended up in Frankfurt where his father continued to work for Siemens Corporation, which, of course, is implicated in all kinds of atrocities during World War II um, and was also apparently contracting for I- I.K. Farb. And, and Machunas was also um, spending a lot of time with his father in the workplace and planned to become an engineer and architect himself and did eventually um, study art history and architecture and planned to be a professor. But then later in life, went, after he had immigrated to the U.S., um, after he would immigrated to the U.S., this, uh, well, he immigrated as a teenager. And then in the U.S., at a certain point, decided to abandon his plans to follow in his father's footsteps professionally and instead entered the downtown New York scene as a kind of provocateur, impresario person who was refusing all of the standard um, sort of conventional career paths, leading this extremely eccentric life, um, also a life full of play and humor and critical interrogation. And, um, and this path, interestingly, led him right back to Germany where um he took on a job with the u.s air force as a as a graphic designer and used that position in order to fund his whole art career and the career of the collaborative that he had initiated and so was you know appropriating air force materials paper copiers um using Stars and Stripes newspaper as the main publicity organ for the events that he was organizing. And it says Flexus is a child of the U.S. military um, because the military was its early patron, as Benjamin Patterson um, says, you know, who was Benjamin Patterson, like, amazing artist who's a fellow traveler in this movement at the time. So um, so what does that mean? You know, <laughs> um, it's a really complicated question. Like, what what is how do we think about the relationship between US power and fluxus under those conditions? And what's their relationship then with this prior history where um, Machunis had been part of a family that had, you know, that had both that had endured under these different conditions of empire successive imperial powers, conditions of violence living through, you know, being in Lithuania during the Holocaust and children were exposed to, you know, seeing the violence. I mean, Lithuanian non-Jewish children were known to be around and to see these things that were happening, and um, and then and I'm interested in these questions like this history of genocide because it then it reappears in flexus later, um, for example in um, Machunis's poster, um, USA surpasses all genocide records from 1966, which then becomes part of Yoko Ono and John Lennon's peace campaign. Um, so. So uh, the, the latter part of my book is really about, um, I'd say, art movements um, that, are much more, that are far more critical of U.S. power than, say, um, Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center. So I'm dealing with different, different sorts of institutions and movements, communities, and their varied ambivalent relationships with U.S. power. And Fluxus is a particularly rich example because, on the one hand, Fluxus depends on U.S. power, depends on the military, also depends on the prestige of the U.S. art scene as it had developed in the 1960s in connection with U.S. power. It depends on that prestige, you know, to get people to come to their events in Europe in the, in, in, in the, in the early and mid, mid-60s. Um, but at the same time, it's, you know, really, you know, raising its fist against U.S. power. And so, yeah, I wanted to explore those complexities
0: we haven't really talked about individual pieces we've been talking about people more but i thought maybe as a one of the last questions i was really struck that i thought that there was some connection between Um, you talk a lot about this 1962 festival and um, Machunas performed a piece called Piano Activities by Philip Corner, where he destroys a piano. And I kept thinking about Yoko Ono's piece that you talk about in the previous chapter called Painting to be Stepped On, which part of the art is to step on the painting. And so in both cases, it seemed to me that they were talking about, you know, to make new art, you have to destroy the old art, which, you know, Like lots of people think that when they're trying to start something new. But I think the ways that you have framed them as being children of displacement, children of war, children who had seen the worst kind of destruction, you know, that it makes me think about those work differently. And I would love for you to talk about, you know, what you see as the connections between these two figures and those particular works
1: of art yes yeah i think there are several levels on which you can think about it um so ono and machunas they're both children of war children of displacement children of violence children of um children of of access powers (laughs) you know and um ono's father you know was a a banking executive bank of tokyo so very much part of the um, financial infrastructure of the japanese war state and um, and Machunis, the son of an electrical engineer who worked at Siemens um, during World War II, and and so they're both. I see them both as submitting themselves and their histories to relentless um, interrogation and criticism. And there is a kind of um, there's a kind of Reiterative temporality to that, where they're they're returning to these gestures of um, of uh, returning to, to gestures of of, of self interrogation and self criticism and maybe even self destruction, <laughs> again and again and again. And with Ono, you know, there's so many ways to talk about her cut piece, but that would be actually one um, different kind of entry point into this cut piece where she has people literally cut pieces of her fabric. Uh, the fabric of her clothing um, in a kind of dramatization of, of uh, a kind of violence. And, and on the one hand, thinking about the destruction of a piano or a piece where you step on it repeatedly in order to destroy the piece, on one level it, it has to do with um, institutions of, of art and institutions of high art. And um, and the the impulse to 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 destroy those institutions or move beyond them or move into something different from those institutions. And given the way we've talked about how power operates within those institutions, you could see why people would want to do that. Um, and so the, the symbolic gesture of stepping on the painting or of smashing apart the piano is part of that. It's a way of, of um, visualizing and dramatizing the violence that is already part of those institutions. But then, and so that's a, a kind of public side to what's going on, thinking about these as you know, public statements about public institutions. But then there's also the personal side of it. And, um, and, and that's what I explore in more depth as well in the, in, in the chapters. And, um, and so, you know, thinking about Machunis's own history of violence and the ways that he would have experienced, would have witnessed at least some side of, of the genocide in Europe during this period in central Europe as the bloodlands and, and and how um, cultural destruction was part of that genocide. So, so that's another part of, of that story.
0: Um, I think for my last question, I want to uh, go to the idea of citizenship, which you talk about at the very beginning, you sort of frame the book about citizenship in the introduction and um, I think for any migrants citizenship and what that means is super important because as soon as you leave your country of origin and move to another one the you know the laws that govern you are are really important and what do you get to do and what do you not get to do and it's not just about the laws around citizenship but then also your access to all these other ideas about citizenship social citizenship and and cultural rights and all of those things and um what do you see as the role of music in these migrants as they sort of negotiate what it means to try to access all or some of the rights of citizenship in the countries in which they are living that are are not their countries of origin. Mm
1: -hmm. I see it as operating at many levels ranging from the economic level where um, folks are just trying to establish some kind of career that will provide remuneration from that level and and provide a a sense of economic security from that level um, way over to the level of um, how do I I fit in socially? How do I um, become part of a community? How do I become part of a community that allows me to establish um, a new sense of myself, a new vocation, a new life that is separate from what I left behind. Um, but maybe still connected with it. How do I integrate these different parts of myself, um, uh, socially in terms of community, in terms of my own sense of self. Um, and I really think that, um, across the different cases in my book, um, people's responses to these dilemmas and questions really varied. And so when I think about, for example, Usachevsky, he, um, in his, basically his diaries or sort of informal personal writings, he described his compositional practice as an attempt to reconcile the um, Russian, Asian, and American parts of his life. And you can actually take that statement and um, you know think about works like Wireless Fantasy which I write about and, and 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 get some sense of you know how he's trying to do that and what that what that what that what that kind of integration would involve. And he also takes objects um, of memory from his personal history, like Chinese dinner plates that his sister had um, brought when she was finally able to immigrate to the U.S. But these Chinese d- dinner plates that she brought with her as a gift to her brother, he used those dinner plates as a source of sound, um, playing them as though they were gongs and then recording them and then manipulating those sounds um, in, one of his, in one of his pieces, Poem in Cycles and Bells. And so there are these kinds of emblems of memory that have to do with a personal history of migration that um, play out in interesting ways in the poetics of the piece. So you have that kind of approach. But then on the other hand, you have, um, you know, Yoko Ono staging her piece, Aos, which is a piece about war um, and wrapping people up in gauze and dragging them across the floor and screaming and, um, you know, playing recordings of Hitler and Hirohito in the background and, you know, putting everyone in darkness and doing these, these incredibly dramatic gestures, far out performance art, essentially. Um, and that is a different way of, you know, it's like affectively so different. It's just, it's, it's um, like a, a kind of really um, defiant way of, of, um, of, of, no, no, responding to a history of forced displacement and, um, you know, responding to her, she had been a forced, uh, forcibly displaced refugee, internal refugee during World War II, um, during the Tokyo fire bombings. And yeah, so, so the personal co- history comes in, 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 interesting different ways. And then, she, but she's not being a good citizen as well. Like she, like that, that is not like trying to fit into U S society to, to perform in that way, to stage that kind of piece. Um, so, so I, I informally, I grouped my um, in my mind, I grouped the different uh, persona in my book into different categories of like good, good, quote, unquote, good immigrant versus, quote, unquote, bad immigrant. And Yoko Ono and George Machinas, they're the provocateurs that the bad immigrants who don't want to fit in and who are just, you know, they're just raging at the machine. And then um, the good immigrants like Ustachevsky, he just wants the FBI to leave him alone. (laughs) And um, he's working through things in a quieter way and um, trying to pass under the radar.
0: Well, I think that it speaks to, I think, how all migrants have to make a decision at some point. Are they going to protest at the inequities that happen when you're a migrant in a new place or do you not want to talk about it so that you might have access to it without protest right and right. so much of that has got to be like different people's personalities and their places in the institutions I mean there's a million reasons why you would make those different decisions but in the end there's like th- this happens in black populations too like you sort of almost have two choices like you either you either talk about it or you don't in public, right? And and um, there are risks and um, sort of psychological um, ramifications to either way of approaching how you deal with being in this kind of inequitable situation.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And with a person like Charles Mingus, you see him at some moments being so outspoken in his protest and then at other moments, like at the Greenwich House sessions, just choosing not to speak about it anymore. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's not an either or. You're absolutely right. But there is a sort of sense in terms of public facing statements and in terms of artistic facing statements, people, I think, tend to, at least at certain points in their life, they have to make a choice one way or the other. They might change their, their approach later on. But, you know, at each point, they're having to make a choice. Like, are you going to be, you know, Yoko Ono seems so extravagant in the way that she um, expresses herself, whereas Usachevsky is not, right? He's not even telling anyone about all of, of what he's going through with the FBI. He doesn't want anybody to know, because that's so dangerous to him.
1: Right. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me to talk about your fascinating book. Um, I hope that people will run right out and read the whole thing because we did not even scratch the surface on some of the issues that you uh, discuss. Um, You mentioned that you are gonna be working on a book on Yoko Ono. Can you talk a little bit about what your future plans are?
1: Yes, I'm um, planning a short book on Yoko Ono. The tentative title is "The Musical Vocation of Yoko Ono," and I'm interested in thinking through the question of um, how she thought of herself as a musician and a composer. Um, Those are both roles that many people around her really didn't want her to occupy, or wouldn't, or they resisted acknowledging her in those roles. And um, and so my book will deal with some of those questions, and it will also uh, really go deeply into history of her musical and philosophical training and history of, um, well, go deeply into a lot of her works. So I'm, I'm super excited. And also, um, we'll uh, look forward to, uh, you know, writing a kind of longer chronology to um, thinking about her musical career up to the present day.
0: Well, that sounds like a great project. I'm so glad you're working on that. I look forward to interviewing you about that book someday. Um, So thank you so much again, Bridget, for joining me. Um, My name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books in Music, a podcast of the New Books Network, and I've been talking to Bridget Cohen, author of Musical Migration and Imperial New York, Early Cold War Scenes, published by University of Chicago Press in 2022. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you. It was such a pleasure.
0: You are so welcome.